0: Two brief stories that kind of uh, help us understand a little bit, somewhat, of this passage in John. An atheist uh, was having a series of meetings. And he would start his meeting and gather lots of skeptics and those who were searching for truth and answers. And he would hold up a watch and said, God is a liar. God is a fake, God is a delusion, God is not real. And he said, if God is real, and I'm standing against him, let him strike me dead in the next five minutes. And week after week, city after city, he would use this as a way of saying, where is God? Anyway, uh, someone went to this meeting and then spoke to a Christian leader about it and was kind of perplexed and challenged, why does God allow this? Why does God allow this man to mock him and lead so many astray? And the Christian leader wisely said, do you think God's patience and love is exhausted in five minutes? About ten years ago, I um, had the the awful privilege of of conducting a really really sad funeral uh, for, for in my old church. There was a couple, and they'd they'd had a little baby girl, and it was the second time a year before their child had died in birth, and this is the second child that died in birth, and. Uh, Tiny little baby, and they they said, Would I conduct the funeral for them? Little white coffin, and just heartbreaking. And led the service, and lots of people there, lots of tears, lots of compassion in my heart for them. And I was at the, done the the committal, buried the little baby, and uh, the mum came to sort of say thank you. And she was only 27, 28. And uh, my heart was full of love for her. And as she approached, my eye kind of was caught by something. And I, you know, I was seeing, looking at her face, and, and I just noticed something in her hair. And I was about to kind of give her a hug and be compassionate. I noticed that her hair, head was seething with lice and nits and ticks. Literally, you know, it was like it was horrendous. And I don't think she noticed, but I knew right in that moment, as I was about to give her a hug of compassion, in me, recoiled, I was like, "Uh," because I I was going to put my head next to hers. I could see them, big things and little things. And I, thankfully, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, kind of said, come on, Edward, it's not that bad, is it? And I, didn't stop. I thank the Lord for that. But as I reflected on that afterwards, I was thinking, what is it? And I could understand, you know, no one wants head lice. Your head's itching now, isn't it? (laughs) But I I knew what what was the extent to which my compassion would go. How, How far would I extend the hand of love? All of us have prejudices. All of us will go so far, but Jesus challenges that. We're going to read from our text this morning. It's John 13 in our series. It's one of my, um, I suppose it's in my top ten favorite passages in the Bible. It's a dangerous thing. You're going to ask me what the other nine are now, and I shall uh, have to think about it. Anyway, John 13, 1 to 8, 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Just a little note on that. Uh, The NIV doesn't quite translate brilliantly there. When it says the time had come, it's actually the word hour. There's something in John's Gospel where Jesus said, my hour has not come yet up to this point. Uh, And as Phil was was saying, we've we've reiterated to you that this, this, uh, up to chapter 12, is the first part of the Gospel. The signs and then Jesus said, yeah, now, now I've got to come to Jerusalem. And the rest of, of John is the last week of Jesus' life. The hour has come. The time has come. The fulfillment of the promises of God has come that Jesus is going to the cross. So Jesus knew that the hour, the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Let me just underline that he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, Son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Gosh, it's great (coughs) stuff. There's a few PowerPoints coming up. There we go. Uh, there's some some amazing, amazing, profound things. And I, I come and dwell upon them from time to time, and I'm forever astounded. And you get echoes. Do you remember the, the film, uh, the trilogy, Lord of the Rings? Saw it at Christmas. There's, there's, it, it, there's lots about it. There's lots we could quote. But there's, there's a bit that always strikes me in... In this story that Jesus said, he knew, he knew the full extent of who he was. Jesus said, uh, that he said, he, he shows them the full extent of his love. In verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That is the most profound, amazing statement that Jesus knows that he is the, the incarnate Son of God. That he knows he's the second person of the Trinity, that he knows in John's prologue, that he said, the word, the word of God, through whom all things were made, that all things have their being through Jesus. That that Jesus understands in that moment that the hour has come, that he is setting his face towards the cross, that he that in other parts of the gospel are told that that Jesus says, No, don't do it by violence, you know. That, um, I could call legions and legions of angels. To kind of sort all this mess out. But he says there's a different way, a more powerful way, a more wonderful way that God has planned. And that is showing the full extent of his love by going to the cross. And this, this story has a, kind of has a symbolic echo for what is going to happen on Good as He's crucified. Back to the Lord of the Rings. Do you know that, that bit where Frodo's got that ring? And it's the ring of power. You know, that one ring to you know, rule them and all that. And um, there's a little bit where little Frodo is kind of—he's, uh, I think, he's with the elves, and there's the, that kind of weirdy elfy queen one. And he has that vision, and he kind of says, "Do you want the ring?" And she kind of—and she's all that beautiful—and uh, and she takes the ring, and elf, it sees, Frodo sees what she would become with power. Do you know that bit? And it kind of turns from being this oh that sort of floaty elfy lovely thing, to this kind of hor- horrible manacle, corrupted being. And it's a play on that you know absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it does, but not in Jesus, because he's not about himself. He's not about. Kind of self-focused and inward about himself, he's always looking out, always looking to the other, always using his love and power for the benefit of us, to the glory of his Father. He's always fully obedient. I kind of can't reinforce this uh, enough, but it, it, you know, I, I, I couldn't use a hundred thousand words to de- describe it. But this is what's so amazing about this passage. Jesus showed them the full extent of his love whilst knowing who he was. The disciples didn't get it at that point, that he was God amongst them. And so he shows them. Now, it's Passover, and, uh, or it's a it's time of of Passover, they're having a meal together. They've been out on the road, they, 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 you know, it's dusty, they tend to wear sandals. Uh, they don't have cars with lots of uh, um, catalytic converters and low emissions. They have donkeys that have a particular type of emission. And uh, you know, when you're walking around in sandals, there's particular issues. Um, we're also quite used to good feet hygiene, foot hygiene here. Uh, one of the, the things I've learned by um, regularly traveling to India, is where people wear bare, go barefoot a lot, is that foot kind of quality is not quite as nice as it is here. That uh, there have been times that I felt God led me to this passage and, and um, felt that it was important to, to wash some of our Indian friends' feet. And I remember two instances particularly, just as I say them to highlight kind of what disciples' feet might be like. You know, if I asked you to take your shoes and socks off now, some of you would be reticent, saying, oh, we don't see my feet. They're all unpleasant. I can tell you they won't be as unpleasant as some feet I've seen. There's this one guy, and I was washing <laughs> feet, and he turned out, he was the, the caretaker, the watchman of, of the, the Bible college. And he came up, and his big toe had been ripped off. And you're all going, oh, head itchy now, and nasty squirming of... Big toes. And again, there was that thing inside me of, oh. But again, the Lord said, come on. So I washed his feet. I had the privilege of washing a 90-year-old lady. She thereabouts, it's difficult to know how old people are sometimes. And uh, her feet were kind of really hard. And all around the heel and the side, because they're slightly flatter and wider, because they tend not to wear shoes barefoot. And all the side of her feet were cracked and hard and kind of oozy. You're glad you came, aren't you? (laughs) For the Eastern culture in Jesus' day, washing feet was kind of one of the lowest things to do. That in Jewish kind of tradition, that even if there was a kind of the, the most menial person in the household, a Jewish slave even, they were given exemption from washing feet that it was seen as something, that as a a person belonging to the family of God, it should not be done even by the lowest of the Jewish culture. It should be done by a Gentile. Someone who didn't know God. It was because uh, people were traveling about and, and their feet, all these kind of things. Dirty, dusty, messy, smelly, fungus. You know. And something... Awfully bad has happened. That the disciples have gathered, Jesus gathered. There may have been others there, and they're about to start eating. And there's been this kind of etiquette breakdown in the meal, that they've still got dirty feet. You know, if you you've got kids, you know, have you washed your hands? And kids go yes, and you go really? And they off they go and they wash their hands. I mean, we do that partly for manners, partly because we realise clean hands are good but there was something about washing, something about preparing, something about this fellowship that is about a meal. It's not just about stuffing their bellies, but there was something about being together, of being one that was represented in the foot washing. And it hadn't happened. And there's kind of like, the reason it, happened, it hadn't happened is that somebody, there isn't someone there who should have done it. And so they're all in that awkward moment of we've got dirty feet, but we've got the bread now and what we're to do. And Jesus kind of takes the initiative, and it's remarkable. He says that he takes off his outer clothing, and the disciples are there, and and, uh, he takes a towel, and he bends, and he starts to wash their feet. Now, in other parts of the gospel, there's lots sort of kind of ranking between the, the, the disciples. This is sort of like, who's top dog? Sometimes they come and say, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? And, and uh, one of the mothers comes up and says, Jesus, will you grant uh, a special place for my sons, you know, when, you know, it, when it kind of comes to this? And, and Jesus says, ah, you've not got it yet, have you? And he shows them the full extent of his love. And he shows them remarkably what the kingdom is about. He takes off his outer robes and he humbles himself. He bows to their feet, takes a bowl and starts to wash them, breaking all the social conventions, breaking society's norms, kind of undermining all their traditions. You know, that he was the rabbi, he was the one, you know, that, that... they would seek to serve, and they knew that Jesus kind of had a heart for the lost and the broken and would would do this. But here he was with his friends. These aren't outsiders. And he shows them the full extent, and he washes their feet. And Peter, good old Peter, kind of first of all says, ah, no, you shan't wash my feet. And she says, I must do this. I need to do this to show you. And Peter, in his great fashion, says, well, wash all of me then, You know, maybe, I don't know if he started to strip down and kind of jump into the little bowl. I don't know. Probably not. But Jesus says, no, you still haven't got it. because I said, this is a symbolic kind of moment. This is about the cross. That Jesus will wash us clean as he dies and his blood is shed. He will wash us entirely clean. Every one of us. From every uh, blemish, every mark, every sin, every transgression, we are cleansed, cleaned by the blood of Christ. But Jesus still washes their feet. And he asks the question, do you understand what I've done for you? And probably stay a bit quiet. But I love the fact that Jesus speaks to us and questions us. Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand? It is a wonderful, wonderful passage. And it speaks today. It speaks of of God's love It speaks of his enormity, of his passion for us to say that he will stoop and engage with us and the dirt of the world at the bottom of society in their etiquette heap of what would be the kind of the lowest of the low and say, here he will meet you and you will encounter God. Vanessa's this morning in Long Larton prison, and three of, uh, of those prisoners who found Jesus are being baptized this morning. I don't know what crimes they've committed, but they're pretty bad to be in Long Larton. But they've discovered this truth in rock bottom, in the worst place, in making horrendous mistakes, dreadful crimes, Jesus meets. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Certainly, certainly. But it also challenges. Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? That there's this aspect of the love of God. I start off about that watch in five minutes. God's patience and love is not exhausted in five minutes. Nor in a year, nor in five years, nor in however old you are. However many mistakes and whether you've strayed far from God or you've never even considered God. God's patience and love for you is not exhausted. Exhausted. But the challenge of understanding that, as Jesus kind of speaks to his disciples, do you understand now what I've done for you? This is a radical moment that shapes and redefines what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, no messenger is greater than the one who sent the message. No no student is greater than the master. Do you get that? And if I've done this, says Jesus, how about you? This story this example is profound as Jesus washes the disciples feet reminds us of God's incomparable love for us. Now someone said it like this, if God had a refrigerator your picture would be on it. If God had a wallet your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. When you want to talk to him he'll listen. He could live anywhere in the universe and he chose your heart. He's for you. He loves you. He loves us so, so powerfully. Even before we considered him, John, when he uh, writes his. Kind of epistle, the first one says this This is the love, not that we love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He first loves us. He first loves you. He first loves you. Uh, There's a new Pope, you know that, don't you? Pope Francis. And he's, he's kind of, you know, so is it Time Magazine? And, and Archbishop Welby said, um, the most significant man of 2013. Well, he has done some really brilliant things. In uh, Monday, Thursday last year, 2013, he broke with tradition. There's a tradition that the Pope should watch wash some uh, kind of young, young priest, trainee priest's feet. And... He decided to break with tradition and he went outside the kind of realm of the church and he went to a a gathering and they'd got some young offenders. There was was a Muslim woman there. There were a whole range of things. And this is a little video of it. Callum will press the button for me. Fra noi quello che è in più alto deve essere al servizio degli altri. E questo è un simbolo, è un segno, no? Lavare i piedi è io sono al tuo servizio. E anche noi, fra noi, non c'è che dobbiamo lavare i piedi tutti i giorni l'uno all'altro, ma cosa significa questo? Che dobbiamo aiutarci uno all'altro, l'altro a uno. I find that really encouraging. And I know when uh, we've done this with youth, if I asked you, now I, I thought about doing this, I thought about getting a load of buckets of water and and asking some people to wash feet. And I know it causes kind of a bit of angst. Some people love it. And other people like, I've got stockings on, can't take them off. And, And others kind of go, I don't want you to wash my feet. I've got a thing about feet. Or no, you shouldn't do it. And I was once with a, a young person, and we were talking about that, and, and they, they, they just couldn't allow their feet to be washed. And I started to explore with them. And there was kind of like, I, I can't let you do it because I don't deserve it. I can't let you do it because I don't, want to, I don't want to be that vulnerable. I don't want that to happen because I'm really insecure in myself. One of the people that had the privilege of washing their feet in India, we had an impasse. She was this 90-year-old lady. She owned a sweet shop. I've known her for a few years now. And I wanted to wash her feet. She's one of those saintly ladies of the church. Just brilliant lady. And uh, prayer warrior and really faithful. And she's got aching back and joints. She's always there, and she came on this youth weekend because she insisted she had to, and she's ninety. It was only this youth camp, and she wouldn't let me wash her feet. And I said, I need to, not because I had like I must do it for my own glory. I said I don't want to because it's something God's asked me to do. And she said, only if i if you can, if only if you let me wash your feet. And so we kind of came to this arrangement. We both had to wash each other's feet, because. Well, she, she, she wouldn't allow me to stoop down. She saw it as embarrassing to her to let me do that to her because I'm white and male and a pastor and a guest and all that. I said, that's why I need to do it. But I also knew that I couldn't stop her washing my feet because it was part of her, her response to God. She wanted to serve God Christians do find it hard to receive, to deserve the love of God. We, we you know, as I said in our worship time, sometimes we, we exclude ourselves. I don't deserve this. No, you don't, but God still stoops. Sometimes Christians say, oh, I've not met God, I'm really busy serving him. And, and you ask the question, have you, have you been filled with the love of God recently? Well, no, I'm too busy for that. Not, or, oh no, I, I've just been busy, just got on with stuff. And Jesus, with his disciples, meets them. Part of the joy of gathering for Sunday worship, week by week, is that Jesus meets with us. That we come and we set up and serve coffee and greet each other and do lots of things. But the real heart of why we gather is is to gather together as a family of God and meet with Him. As we pray Sunday by Sunday before the service, one of the consistent prayers is, Lord, we long to meet with you afresh, to be filled with you. And it's not kind of a pleading prayer. Oh, Lord, come on down. But it's a reminder that he's with us. And he stoops again and again. Because he loves us to wash our feet. Do you understand what I have done for you? I put this um, little phrase here. The cross is both the way of salvation and the key to community. And this foot washing reminds us of that. That Jesus shows us the way shows us the way to what? How we are to treat one another. The motivation, the attitude, the inclination of our heart is to love one another. That The cross does that. He unites us. We all come together through uh, faith in Jesus who died upon the cross. That Jesus washes all of the disciples' feet, Judas and Peter. Judas, the one who had kind of set his heart to, to kind of betray Jesus, that he 'd been tempted by Satan and he 'd given in to it, he was the one that's going to catalyze this awful arrest and, and scourging and beating and torture of Jesus. and Jesus, knowing this, washes his feet. that's the extent of God 's love. And Peter, who doesn't quite get it yet and understand, but it forms community. What do I mean by that? That the love of God, is fully known by Jesus. He demonstrates his love, and he washes their feet and says, I will count myself as least. You are not beneath me. I will serve you. And says, no student is above the teacher. Do you understand what I've done for you? Uh, followers of mine. Go and do likewise. In other words, if you love Jesus and serve him and follow him, then we are to have the same characteristic, the same nature, the same heart that says, I am not greater than or superior or better than. I will serve you and see you as a brother or a sister, one whom God loves, and I will serve. John, in the prayer that he records of Jesus, says, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And this is a great sign of it. This is a great demonstration of what love looks like. When we talk about God's love, we could use all sorts of poetry and all sorts of kind of abstract language. But I love the fact that he does something really powerfully practical. He takes off his outer clothes. In other words, any status or any kind of uh, robe of uh, of, uh, reputation. And he stoops and he humbles himself at the feet of the dirty disciples' feet and washes their feet. It's fantastic. And serves them and says, This is a hallmark. This is a demonstration. This is a picture of what it means to be the people of God, the community of God, the fellowship, the family that Jesus has called together. This is what should be a hallmark of us. It truly should, for one another, but also for the world, of love enacted. Not just, oh, we love God and it's kind of just abstract and, and a notion and a theological statement and a doctrine. Yes, it has to be that. But it works itself out in really earthy, down-to-earth, practical ways. And you see glimpses of it being worked out. Tony Campola, I want to read the story to you. I find it quite kind of amazing. You may have heard it. Tony Campolo is a sociologist, a professor uh, of um, a university in Pennsylvania. And he, he speaks all over the world. And one night, he was in Hawaii, late one night. I'll read you the story. Up a side street, I found a little place that was... I mean, can you just click on the uh, A little place that was uh, still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out, but it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked, what do you want? I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured the coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated it if he'd used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open and, to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, And they sat either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make uh, my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded with a nasty tone. "So so, So what do you want me to do, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I, just, I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you, it was my birthday. And I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why would I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. Then I called the fat guy behind the counter and asked him, Do they come here every night? Yeah, he answered. "'The one right next to me, does she come here every night?' "'Yeah,' he said. "'That's Agnes. "'She comes here in every night. "'What do you want to know?' He was probably thinking something else. "'Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday,' I told him. "'What do you say you and I do something about that? "'What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her "'right here tomorrow night?' A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks." As he answered with a measured delight, that's great, I like it, that's a great idea. Calling to his wife who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here, this guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them. If it's okay with you, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at about two thirty and decorate. I'll even get a birthday cake. No, 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 no way," said Harry. That was his name. The cakes, the birthday cakes, my thing. I'll make the cake. So at two thirty the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and I made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read "Happy Birthday, Agnes." I decorated the diner from one end to the other, uh, and I had that diner looking real good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten word out on the street because that by three fifteen, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall to wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> At three thirty on the dot, the door swung open and in came Agnes and a friend. I had everybody re- ready. After all, he was the kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, they all screamed, "Happy birthday!" Never have I seen someone so flabbergasted, so stunned, and so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her uh, arm to steady her, and she was led to sit on one of the stools around the counter. And we all sang happy birthday to her. And as we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the cake with all the candles on was carried out, she lost it and just wept. Harry gruffed, gruffly mumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake, then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, if it's all right with you, I mean, if it's okay, I kind of want to look I want to ask you, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, if it's all right if we don't eat it right now, right away. Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street by a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home. Okay, I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly towards the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was stunned silence in the place, not knowing what else to do. So I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. And I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In One of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry waited for a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. Modern example. This was a headline that it's kind of up to date. You know, foot washing is a slightly slightly strange thing. You know, if we set up um, uh, if we set up um, you know buckets on the street of Camden and Mickleton and Evesham, people would think we're really really weird. And what are you doing? They may understand, but there's other ways that we can show the love of God. Uh, this is a quote from from Mother Teresa. She, she, in 1929, she was an 18-year-old girl. She arrived in India, and motivated by her love for Jesus and the same attitude which Don describes, she visited the poorest families in Calcutta slums to wash the sores of lepers, love the crippled, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and care for those in the city who'd been discarded as unwanted refuse. She devoted the rest of her life to serving them until she died in 97. She said to Time magazine, I don't claim anything of the work, it is his work. I'm like a little pencil in his hand, that is all. He does the thinking, he does the writing, the pencil has nothing to do with it. Or in America, not Westboro Baptist, Um, thanks Callum, this headline, uh, stunned People, Uh, I hugged a man in his underwear, I think Jesus would have too. A group of Christians uh, went to the Chicago Gay Pride March, and they decided that the reputation of the church wasn't really kind of very strong with the gay pride folk. And so they had banners. I used to be a uh, Bible-banging homophobe. Sorry. I'm sorry for how the church has treated you. I'm sorry Christians have shunned you. And uh, they they describe in this news article that kind of made American press, they, they describe how people kind of were walking past and saw kind of the word Christian and thought they would be against them. And then they started to read the signs. And they were kind of people who normally would have been targeted and harassed and vilified and hated by Christians. Suddenly we're like, wow. And some were kind of one guy on the float, kind of this guy in his underwear got off the gay pride float and was so moved by the simple expression, went and hugged them. That's washing feet in a modern context. That's saying, we don't take the high ground. That's saying, no one is beyond love of God. That's saying, God loves you. That's saying, all are welcome. Let me serve you. In no way were they saying, well, you know, what you're doing doesn't matter, but it's saying you are precious. Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And here's the challenge. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm so glad for this church that I see the signs of that. But we're not yet perfect. For one another, as we go through challenges, as we fall and make mistakes, Sometimes people withdraw from the church because they think, people won't welcome me. Of course we will. No one ever puts themselves beyond God. No one ever puts themselves out of fellowship and the reach of love. And we're inspired by the love of God to go out, to serve one another, and to meet with the world. Say, God loves you. If you had a refrigerator, your name would be on it. serve you. We pray for God's blessing. Maybe God's blessing will come in greater as we do these things. He said it. You'll be blessed if you do them. Henry, would you come up and the band? <coughs> What do we want to pray for? There's, there's, there's those things of a fresh touch of God's love for you. You've been busy, you've self excluded, you've put yourself on the edge. We really would like to pray for you. That you may be carrying a real guilty, dark secret and you think, I can't, God won't want me. Yes, He loves you. And He will meet you in the mess and the dirt. And the other thing I'd really like, to pray for you. If, if you know there's, there's people you don't, you know, that it, for me, it was seeing the lady crawling with lice that was that kind of check, kind of turning back, holding back. How far does your love go? And how much does God need to inspire you to go further? If you know there's a prejudice, if you know there's a barrier, if you know that there's, the, you know, only so far, God, would you come out and, and ask that God would transform you. Let's stand together.